Today's podcast is sponsored by Pepper Boxing. Pepper Boxing is a guided workout that utilizes unique teardrop-style heavy bags to deliver the finest group workout in Nashville. The bags are filled with water, meaning they're easier on the joints while still providing great resistance for your training. Pepper Boxing pairs high-energy music with elements of interval training and weighted bar exercises for an invigorating, full-body workout. The unique circular layout ensures that you will never lose sight of the instructor or their guidance. There's no contact in Pepper Boxing's classes. They're not looking for a fight, just a great way to enjoy the physicality and release of boxing. Pepper Boxing, it's conditioning with a purpose. For more information, go to pepperboxing.com. Welcome to the Nashville Scenecast. I'm scene editor Steve Cavendish. A year from now, Tennessee will choose a new U.S. Senator. After two-term incumbent Bob Corker announced his retirement earlier this fall, it's turned into one of the most interesting Senate races in the country. Staff writer Stephen Hale and I sat down with Nashville attorney James Mackler to talk about his candidacy to replace Corker. We need to say thanks to Jeff the Brotherhood for allowing us to use part of Diamond Way from the We Are the Champions album as our intro music. You can buy it wherever good music is sold. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn. If you like it, please subscribe to it and rate us and leave us comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. And now, James Mackler. Mr. Mackler, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Um, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run for the U.S. Senate? I'm happy to, thanks. I have to go back a little bit in time to really explain who I am and why I'm running. I've been practicing law for about 20 years, but there have been a number of times in my life where I felt called away from the traditional practice of law to do something else. Uh, after September 11, 2001, I felt called to service. I left my law practice and walked into an Army recruiting station. I felt like I had to do more at that moment in history, and I asked if I could go to flight school, having never flown a helicopter before, <laughs> but it seemed like something that I could really do to contribute at an important time. I thought about how my grandfather's generation must have felt after Pearl Harbor. My grandfather was a World War II veteran and a police officer, and I just felt like I had a choice to keep doing what I was doing or uh, stand up. And so went to that recruiting station, asked to go to flight school. I had to get an age waiver because I was 30 at the time, but I got this age waiver and was fortunate to be assigned to 101st Airborne Division, obviously a division with a a storied history, and I was very proud to be part of that unit. We deployed to Iraq in 2005 to 2006, and I saw firsthand what happens to a country when the rule of law breaks down and when a country becomes so divided and so tribal, and that's something I've been thinking a lot about more recently. I came back from Iraq and seeing another problem that I wanted to tackle, and that, that being military sexual assault and harassment, transferred to the JAG course. So I could go back to being an attorney but more specifically a prosecutor. So I spent six years prosecuting military sexual assault and harassment crimes for the 101st Airborne Division. In 2011, I returned to private practice and have been raising my family here in Nashville. I'm originally from Nashville, raising my family here. And I had a feeling not unlike the feeling I had after 9-11, that our democracy is again threatened in a different way, but no less serious. And my response then, in order to be on the front lines of the battles we were fighting, was to join the Army. My response now was to get into politics, even though I never had any desire 
to serve in elected office previously. So I resigned six months ago from my law firm and hired a campaign team and have been running this race now for six months because I think that we really need people who want to bring this country together, who really want to bring solutions for health care and jobs and education to Tennesseans. And I have that proven track record of service and sacrifice, and the people of Tennessee are really responding to that. When you got into the race, uh, you were presumably going to face Bob Corker, assuming you got the Democratic nomination. That's right. Um, that landscape has changed. What was your reaction to, to Senator Corker's decision not to run? Frankly, it didn't change much for me. I did get into the race thinking that Senator Corker would be uh, the Republican nominee, but my goal throughout this period has been to travel the state, meet people, learn from them, uh, share my beliefs and what I intend to do. None of that changed when the likely Republican nominee changed from Senator Corker to uh, Marsha Blackburn. I am looking forward to the contrast, being able to present the contrast between me and Congresswoman Blackburn. As I mentioned, I'm someone with a history of military service, and I'm not a career politician. Uh, she very much is a career politician. You've been traveling the state. You've been talking to folks. Um, I think certainly when everyone thought Senator Corker was going to run again, this would have been true. But just in Tennessee in general, um, you know, you know as well as anyone, Democrats are in a tough spot. In your conversations with people around the state and in the six months you've been campaigning so far, what makes you think a Democrat can win this race? I've I've been so inspired by my conversations that I've had throughout the state over these six months. There's so much uh, that we hear about the loss of civility in politics, and that's certainly true on the cable news networks and on social media. But I've found that when I meet with people face-to-face, where they are, where they live, where they work, regardless of their political background, we all really want the same things. We want our children to be educated. We want health care. We want to live in a safe country. And so I've had consistently good conversations time and time again, and I've found that when I talk with people of any political background, about the fact that I joined the Army after 9-11, that I'm a patriot, but not a patriot who believes in blind obedience to authority, rather someone who believes in the values that our Constitution stands for. When I talk with them about military service and about faith and about the things that really matter, health care, education, and jobs, I am surprised and encouraged every single time by the fact that folks really do want to be brought together and not torn apart. So I'm not concerned about the state's history of voting Republican. In fact, I see this this state as being fundamentally moderate, as indicated by the fact that our uh, governor changes every eight years from Democrat to Republican, and by the fact that, you know, Senators Corker and Alexander, on the spectrum of things, are generally viewed as moderate senators. So I've been encouraged, uh, and frankly, um, my my spirits have been lifted by the quality of the conversations I've had. What, what do you make of uh, Senator Corker's comments about President Trump right now? Um, I believe his his favorite um, his favorite phrase is is about adult daycare going on at the White House. Yeah, you know the, the fact that Senator Corker didn't feel free to speak his mind until after he decided he wouldn't run for reelection really shows what's wrong with politics as usual in Washington. I'm someone who got into this race six months ago, knowing how difficult it would be, but knowing that it was the right thing to do. We need folks who do the right thing every time, even when it's difficult, and even when there could be possibly negative repercussions. It's, it's always easy, of course, to speak your mind uh, when you aren't going to face consequences for that. Of course, I'm happy to see Senator Corker speaking his mind, but 
we're at a time right now in our history where our country is facing serious national security threats from North Korea and elsewhere. It is not the time for the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and the president to be involved in a Twitter battle. Are you saying that Twitter is not the uh, is not an accurate uh, reflection of the populace or uh, a good way to a good way to, to, to communicate things? With, with, yeah, with, with all due respect, all due respect to Twitter and, and apologies to it, it's not the best way to conduct foreign policy. Please do keep following us on Twitter and uh, liking our tweets at Nashville Scene at S Cavendish at I am Stephen Hill. Well, for that matter, at James there underscore you go. Mack. There you go. We're not we're not deleting our Twitter account either. Yeah, there you go. Um, I, I'm I think. As with any political conversation right now, there's sort of Trump is this cloud that hangs over everything. Um, and so we, we want to talk with you about him and I think maybe how you think he needs to be constrained if you were to be elected. But there are also all these other policy issues that are obviously still important, but they can to, tend to get crowded out. Um, and I don't know, maybe let's maybe let's start with those. I mean, what are if it's possible to set set the president aside for a moment? I mean, what are the policy goals that uh, are motivating you in your campaign? And w- what's your pitch to the folks you're talking to of what you would do affirmatively as opposed to just stopping bad things? That's a, a great question because it's so important to me to be offering solutions and not being someone who's obstructionist or just talking about bad things. The, the three policy priorities for me, and they're not always in this order necessarily, but they're always the top three, are jobs in the economy, health care, and education. If we don't get those right, almost everything else becomes a luxury in many ways. Each one of those, of course, has its own way that I, as a senator, can impact it. And some of those tend to be more local. Others tend to be more federal. But to take health care as a first example, you know, we've been through a situation recently where we've had one party seeking to craft you know, basically a secret health care bill behind closed doors with no input from the American people. That's, the kind of, that's what Marsha Blackburn did. And that is not what we need from our elected leaders in Washington. Healthcare is a solvable problem. Healthcare is a right. And there's no excuse for our leaders to refuse to work together to solve that problems when that problem when when so many other countries have managed to do a better job than we have in terms of outcome and cost. Do you think Tennessee should have expanded uh, expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act? I think it was uh, really a if we look at, well, let's look at Kentucky, for example. Kentucky expanded Medicaid and has had uh, better success uh, than we have. We've, we have the worst uh, rate of hosp- rural hospital closures in the country right now. Those rural hospitals are the economic drivers for communities. When you lose your rural hospitals, you lose jobs, you lose ec- the economic benefit of those hospitals and the ability to obtain health care. So the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, while imperfect, is something that we should be working to strengthen and improve not not undermine what what specifically do you think uh could be done to improve it well we need to bring down health care costs that's a, a good starting point and i don't claim to have all of the solutions to health care as i said i believe this is a solvable problem but it requires a willingness to acknowledge your own lack of of knowledge and willingness to work with experts to find those problems so there are many ways to bring down health care costs and we need to be exploring those health care those those ways one thing that comes to mind is uh, bringing down drug costs, perhaps by um, you know improving our ability to negotiate those costs. But there are, are many solutions, and it's simply a matter, really, of finding those solutions wherever they lie to work across the aisle to get the get things done. Back on, uh, I, I want to 
delve a little bit deeper into, into healthcare here. It's striking to me that Marsha Blackburn has said that that she would be a person that could get the logjam in the Senate sort of undone. And it strikes me that particularly in the healthcare votes that have been taken this year, Senator Corker and Senator Alexander have been remarkably in step with the president on on the Republicans' versions of repeal and replace. Does putting Blackburn in the Senate strike you as so- solving the kind of the health care logjam? No, it, it's it's ridiculous and disingenuous for Marsha Blackburn to ever claim that she is a political outsider, that she can somehow you know change from the House to the Senate and then solve all the problems with gridlock in government. She has shown her priority again and again to be protecting her big special interest donors, most recently with her efforts, her successful efforts to block DEA enforcement regarding opioid abuse. As you pointed out, Corker and Alexander voted in lockstep with the Republican Party. So having someone else voting in lockstep with the Republican Party doesn't change the outcomes. We need thoughtful leaders who are willing to work with their party when appropriate and against their party when that's appropriate to find solutions. I'm particularly interested in the fact that since you, after 9-11, you decided to join the service, what your view of the the, the authorization uh, for military force that has been enforced for the last, I guess, 18 or 16 years now, uh, what do you think Congress should do in terms of authorizing the president uh, to use military force around the world? We need to review uh, the authorization for the use of military force and change it to reflect today's circumstances. As you pointed out, that's uh, gotten pretty old. We're at the point now where folks don't even know where we have troops in harm's way. We have uh, a separation of powers for good reason, and we have uh, supposed to have a constitutional system where we have our legislative branch authorizing the use of force, declaring war, and we need to return to a time where there's more congressional oversight it's uh, really not acceptable to have troops all over all over the world doing things that most members of Congress probably, probably aren't even aware of. It strikes me that in, in our certainly in our national politics, but this happens at the state level too. You have um, there's always a certain appeal to being an outsider. President Trump even played on this. He said, "I'm not I'm not from the swamp. You know, he's going to drain the swamp. He's going to come in from the outside. You're an outsider. You're not a career politician. Have you thought about though?" what you would do if you were elected to not become one? I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, it's it, there are people who are always elected to D.C. who are outsiders, and then next thing you know, they seem very much like all the people they were criticizing two years before. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I, I first want to point out that although I'm not and never want to be viewed as a career politician, I'm someone who has studied the law his entire life. I'm also someone who's worked to make sure the law works for ordinary people my entire life as a prosecutor, also uh, on the federal public defender panel defending indigent clients in federal court. Uh, I've worked for a variety of nonprofit organizations throughout my lifetime, again, making sure the law works. So, uh, and I have always studied the law. That, That being said, it is so important that people remain true to their own values and representing their own constituencies once they get to the Senate. I, I'm fortunate to be to have a family that will always remind me of what my core values are. My wife is very good at reminding me of those things on a regular basis, <laughs> and it's important to have someone who will keep you grounded that way. This has never been something that I'd wanted to do, but rather something I feel 
almost called to do. And if I go there and I'm true to myself and I wind up being a one-term senator, I think we all need to, uh, anyone who goes to Washington needs to go there with, not with the intention of making this a career, but with the intention of making some change, positive change for their community. That's what I intend to do. It's part of how I was raised and part of the way that the military instills, instills leadership values that you need to be true to yourself. You need to have integrity. You need to make the hard choices. Those are all things that I intend to do. And to give you just one more example is, again, I entered this race when it was against Bob Corker, when this was a very, very difficult race to run because it is the right thing to do. That's the same reason I joined the Army, because it was the right thing to do. I don't choose the easy path. That's what I teach my kids. When you're trying to decide what kind of decision to make, you look at what is going to help the people around you and what's the right thing to do, not what the easy path is. I think if that is my guiding principle in Congress, and it will be, then I can avoid becoming you know, part of the problem and continue to be part of the solution. In talking about your motivation to run, the election of President Trump, I think I'm right in saying, was was that and, and how things have gone since he took office. Uh, if you're elected, I, I want to ask you what you think should be done to kind of constrain him or rein him in. I mean, the, the biggest thing, I guess, though, is whether you think there should be some affirmative effort to remove him from office. I mean, do you think Democrats should be trying to impeach the president or 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 make noises about that? They don't have the power to do it right now. But is that something you think needs to be talked about? Well, there's a lot to that question. First, uh, I wouldn't say that it was the election that that caused me to run. It was the entire process leading up to and after the election, looking at the loss of civility, the fact that folks were not willing to work together to solve problems, the increasingly um, hostile rhetoric of calling you know people in the politi- other political parties our enemies. Uh, I've I've been to combat and I've seen the enemy. Uh, it's it's not a Democrat or a Republican. That, that's really what motivated me to run, thinking about the kind of country that my children are going to be raised in. Uh, certainly, the election was part of that, but it was the entire process up to and then after the election. I, I'm a, a former prosecutor. I believe that the rule of law applies to everyone from the president on down and that uh, misconduct needs to be investigated and dealt with appropriately. That's the way we should be dealing with conduct from everyone in government. So, so um, short of removing him from office, which, you know, we should note there is this investigation going on and the Bob Mueller's investigation is ongoing and we've seen indictments in that this week. So that that stuff is being investigated. Sh- setting that aside, what would you like to see um, senators do, uh, people in Congress do, to keep the president, you know, in between the lines, if it were? I mean... Uh, right. We're, we're, you know, our system of government is is designed that way. I mean, we have separation of powers to provide for checks and balances. I'd like to see uh, each branch of government continuing to robustly assert its own authority to keep each branch in check. And I think Congress has gone much, much too far in ceding power to the president and allowing those checks and balances to go away. We talked a little while ago about the authorization for the use of military force as a good example of that. Uh, too many people in Congress have been all too willing to cede that power to the president because they don't want to make hard votes hard decisions. They don't want anything to come back on them when things go badly. Members of Congress have to be willing to accept the consequences for their decisions, and that means being willing to make decisions. And if we, as members of Congress, can be more willing to make those hard decisions, that will constrain the president. That's how our system was designed. Do you think Congress, do you think Congress should attempt to, to limit the president's ability to act through executive order? Uh, this was, this was a, a technique that Democrats used 
for six years when they didn't have the Congress and, and were trying to get through some sort of agenda was President Obama used the, uh, used the executive order fairly liberally. Uh, and now that it seems like it seems like that is purely a political question. If you're in power, it's good. If you're not in power, it's bad. I don't. I wouldn't make a value judgment about executive orders. Presidents uh, have the power to make executive orders for good reason. There are some policies that should be issued through executive order. Congress always has the ability to pass legislation that would uh, counteract the effect of an, of an executive order. Again, it's a matter of Congress being willing to work together and then take accountability for the bills that they pass. And that, and that applies to both parties. I know we're bouncing all over the place, but something you said earlier made me think about this. We've talked about your military service, your time in Iraq, and also about the AUMF. Does your did your your time in the military and I mean has that changed how you look at the war on terror as as we call it this on uh, and and kind of how that's being prosecuted and and how you think it should be handled? Yeah, there's there's no doubt that my time in the military affects my view of how we prosecute the war on terror of how we view the military and of how we view diplomacy in in so many ways and that could that that could be a very long discussion. Sure, let me sure. let me bring up a couple things that jump to mind right away. One of them is the importance of diplomacy. It it troubles me a lot when we hear leaders talk about reducing funds for the state department or reducing diplomacy in the name of serving soldiers or of national defense. I've seen the consequences uh, of, you know, full-on military conflict and I know that good diplomacy can reduce the number of deployments, it can reduce the length of deployments, and it can save American lives. And we do soldiers a disservice when we try to underplay the importance of diplomacy. That's one thing that jumps to mind right away. Another thing is the importance of the rule of law. I taught soldiers about the rules of engagement and the rules for use of force when I was at Fort Campbell. And it is so important that we continue to assert American values overseas and reflect those values rather than stooping to the level of some of those who were fighting. When leadership doesn't stand up for those American values, for using force when necessary, but using it appropriately within the confines of the law, it really uh, undermines the values that we went to war for. That, that troubles me a lot. It's important, very important, that when we send people overseas, that they are working for our values, that they're reflecting our values, and our leaders in Washington need to understand that. You have to go through a primary. Uh, right now, you're the only candidate, but uh, there's another candidate out there sort of looming. Uh, what do you make of uh, Phil Bredesen's toying with the idea of getting into the race? You know, I'm, I'm not thinking about Phil Bredesen. The Democratic system, of course, allows whoever wants to to get into the primary. What I'm thinking about is the contrast between me and my eventual opponent, Marsha Blackburn. As we've talked about a little bit already, the contrast between someone with a history of service and sacrifice versus someone who's been serving special interests, someone who's a political outsider versus a political insider. That's been my focus, that and speaking with the people of Tennessee. It's going to take a lot of money uh, to run a Senate race. It's increasingly, uh, every cycle, it becomes more expensive. Um, By some estimates, it's going to take eight to ten million dollars in order to mount a successful challenge. What is your what is your pitch to people to give money to you? Uh, Well, it's no secret that Senate races are costing more and more money. We've raised about eight hundred thousand dollars so far in my campaign. And that's grassroots individual contributions, basically starting from zero. And I'm very proud of that. That's not special interest PAC money. That's individuals across the state. In fact, it represents contributions from 83 out of Tennessee's 95 counties. My my pitch is that I'm someone with a proven track record 
of service who stepped forward after 9-11 to serve this country because it was the right thing to do, that has spent my entire career, both on the battlefield and in the courtroom, making sure that the law works for people, and then stepped forward again, again, leaving a law practice to do something that I think is the most important thing I can possibly do at this point in history, and that what the Democratic Party and, more importantly, the people of Tennessee need are people who are not political insiders, but rather have the energy and the desire and the values to go to Washington, D.C. and work for every single Tennessean who are going to be senators for Tennessee, not Democratic senators, not Republican senators. And every single person I speak to responds to that message of service and that courage to stand up and do what needs to be done, even when it's difficult. When I look at the governor's race, uh, there. There's a, there's a contrast between Carl Dean and Craig Fitzhugh uh, that's interesting on a lot of different levels. One of the contrasts that's drawn is that the Dean campaign will, will likely be better funded, uh, and there is an argument among uh, among Democrats who have had who have not performed well in statewide elections uh, that have not raised money well. That at least in the in the governor's race, backing Carl Dean gives them a better chance to be competitive in the fall. Uh, there's a whole range of other issues involved in the governor's race as well. Uh, it seems to me that there's some contrast there between a potential Bredesen candidacy and your candidacy here, that they, people may react well to your message, but maybe looking at a, at a former governor with better name ID who can, uh, who can bring resources into a race and maybe be more competitive for Democrats in the fall. How do you counter that, that, sort, of, that sort of argument? Well, there's a very straightforward way to uh, address that argument, and that's for everyone listening to this and reading this to go to jamesmackler.com <laughs> and contribute to the campaign. This is not uh, a, a problem that cannot be solved. Obviously, if you have spent your career like Marshall Blackburn has in politics, you raise a lot of money and you have a lot of money available to you. If you're a new candidate, you have to rely on grassroots support. I'm very confident that there is enough grassroots support to raise the money. I think if you have the ideas, I'm willing to put uh, I'm willing to put my history, my history of service and my grassroots support up against anyone else uh, dollar for dollar. I think that in the end, the ideas and the grassroots support will win every time. It may seem like an out of the blue question, I know, but what, what does it mean to you to be a Democrat? It's a good question. And it's something I've had to think more about because I've never been uh, a an establishment, a Democratic establishment person. I've never labeled myself in any way uh, previously prior to running for office. But I believe that health care is a right. I believe that public education is the surest path to opportunity. And I believe that Congress should be working for people and not for corporations. And, I, and that's what I believe Democrats stand for. And that is in clear contrast to what Marsha Blackburn appears to stand for. The last, the last piece of that, what do you mean by should be working should not be working for corporations? Well, again, I mean, if we look at the support where Marsha Blackburn gets her support, $120,000 from uh, the pharmaceutical industry to push a bill that allows our streets to be flooded with op- opioids is working for corporations, not for people. Uh, if we look at her vote on privacy, taking money from Comcast, allowing privacy data to be sold is working for corporations and not for people. Crafting a health care bill behind closed doors in secret uh, that is really a tax cut rather than a health care bill, again, is working for corporations and not for people. You worked on, um, during your time as a, as a prosecutor in the military, on sexual harassment, sexual assault cases, something that sadly is dominating the news right now. 
not just because of all of the other reports coming out, but because the president himself has been accused of that kind of behavior many, many times. Um, I know this is a big question. There are many answers to it. But given your experience on the legal side of these kinds of cases, um, I wonder what you make of all this news and what you think needs to be done uh, by people in a position to do it. That's politicians. That's people in the legal community and what and whatever else uh, to address this. Sc- it's a uh, scourge. I yeah. Say. No, it's a great question. And the most rewarding thing I've done. I, I hate to try and rank them, but I can say one of the most rewarding things I've done was that time that I spent as a prosecutor working to represent the victims of military sexual assault and harassment. Those are always heinous crimes. Always in the military context, there's an additional element of breaking down the chain of command and breaking down mission readiness and really affecting the country's safety. If you can't trust your brothers and sisters in arms to look after you and have to worry about whether or not you will be either assaulted or harassed or taken advantage of, you can't fight the nation's fight, nation's battles, and you can't win the nation's wars. And so being able to work on those cases was so extraordinarily rewarding and challenging, but, but well worth every moment I spent working on those cases obviously if I had the solution, I'd be out there and I'd fix the problem. One thing I can tell you though, that I saw time and time again was that in almost every case, there was someone else who knew about the problem, who either witnessed an assault or harassment or who knew about the person's history, the the assailant or the harasser's history, and failed to stand up to do the right thing. And this goes back to that idea that I keep harping on, I guess, is that you have to do the right thing, even when it's difficult. And you know, not to say that this would prevent every single instance, but there are so many times when a man or a woman could have stood up and done more to prevent something from happening, and instead they stood silently by and allowed that to happen. Each and every one of us has to take accountability for ourselves and for this problem and step up even when it's hard, even when it can put your job in jeopardy, your status in jeopardy, even when it can affect your career, uh, whatever it is, whatever it is that keeps people from standing up They've got to set that aside and do the right thing because this is, as you said, this is an extraordinary problem and it says so much about us as a society and it doesn't say anything good. Uh, um, I've got two little girls. I worry for their future, but this is a, a problem with people. Uh, it's not a problem for, you know, for women or men in particular. It's just a problem that is undermining everything in our society right now. And uh, there are many things we can do, but since I have an audience right now, I want to—I will directly urge each and every one of them uh, to stand up and do the right thing, because everyone knows what the right thing is, and have the courage to do it. Uh, I'm interested. You had mentioned that uh, the Republican health care plan was really a tax cut, kind of wrapped uh, with with health care language wrapped around it. I, I'm interested in what you think of the tax reform plans that are kind of floating around Congress right now, uh, and what what you would vote for or not vote for in terms of uh, a change in tax policy? Well, of course, we don't have you know, granular detail on the, t- on the tax plan now, which is one of the big problems with giving any kind of real critique and one of the problems with the way things are happening in Washington right now. One of the things that's apparent to me is that Republicans who had been deficit hawks, refusing to vote for all kinds of things because of an argument that it would increase the deficit, seem to be willing to vote for a health care plan that um, disproportionately benefits the largest corporations and the richest Americans with no regard for its impact on the deficit, hoping for some kind of phantom increase in economic growth. And that really shows 
you know, once again. You don't think Arthur Laffer's uh, curve <laughs> is, is going to save us all? Well, I guess uh, hopefully we won't find that out because I'm not very confident in it. Uh, really, it just shows again that this is uh, a problem, and it's not exclusive to Republicans, but they're the ones in charge right now. But this is a problem, again, of you know putting corporations ahead of people. We need tax reform. We need to simplify the tax code. But from what I can tell of the plan currently being offered, this does not benefit middle and lower income individuals. And it doesn't benefit small business and entrepreneurs, which are the real drivers of economic progress. If we're going to work for tax reform, and we should, we need to make sure that it's fair, that it's simple, and that it drives economic growth for entrepreneurs and small businesses. One of the things that one of the pieces of that President Trump keeps saying that that they would like to repeal the estate tax in order to help small business. Do you think that would help? I just I just don't know anyone who makes their decision about whether or not to start or continue a small business based on their thoughts about the estate tax. I want to come back to one last thing. Uh, Marsha Blackburn put out an ad today uh, talking about how she would stand for the national anthem and would never kneel. Uh, taking a taking a swipe at NFL football players who uh, NFL players who have kneeled on the sidelines. What do you make of professional football players' decision to kneel? Well, I, I haven't seen the ad, and I fought for the Constitution, and I say it that way because I swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution, meaning the ideals enshrined within that document, not for a flag, not for a piece of paper, and certainly not for a political individual or leader. Those ideas include the freedom of speech and the freedom to protest. Now, I also uh, will not kneel for uh, the national anthem. I intend to always stand and, uh, for our anthem, but that's my choice. Uh, that's my choice as an American, and I absolutely uh, will fight for other Americans to make a different choice. I don't. Again, that's not how I would express my discontent, but I understand those who do, and I will always protect their right to do so. Mr. Mackler, thank you. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure.